I have a question for you this morning. How many of you know the meaning of your name? Show of hands. Wow. So a lot of you actually don't know the meaning of your name. Now, parents often look up names in baby books. How many of you parents have done that, trying to select the name of your child? My wife, Chris, and I have shared this before. We were very intentional about selecting the names of our children. Our first um, child is a boy. His name is David Benjamin, and it's actually a Hebrew name. It means beloved son of my right hand. And then God blessed us with a daughter. Her name is Elizabeth, and her name means God's promise. And then 10 years later, a surprise baby. His name is Jonathan, and his name means God's gift. And so it's really interesting um, that everybody in my immediate family has a name with a spiritual significance. My wife is Christine, and her name means Christ follower. Even our dog, our dog, has a name with a spiritual meaning because he's named after a Bible character. His name is Barnabas, and it means son of encouragement. So I, I just don't know what my parents were thinking when they named me Dudley because it's English in origin, and it means, well, some of you know because I've shared this, man from the woods of Duda which has no spiritual significance whatsoever. But it's the name that I have. Now, over 2,000 years ago, there was a baby born in this obscure little village in the Middle East. And according to the Bible, before this baby was born, an angel appeared to his stepfather and told him that this baby's name had already been chosen. The angel said to a man named Joseph, you shall name this child Jesus. And here's the reason for he shall save his people from their sins. Now the name Jesus means God saves, or God rescues. And so this little baby grows up and he launches his public ministry and he comes to be known by this name, Jesus Christ. Now Christ is not Jesus' last name, as some people think. Christ is actually a title. It means Messiah. It means the anointed one. And any student of history knows the incredible influence that Jesus Christ has had on our world. Every time you start your computer and you look at the date, it's a reminder that Jesus Christ has split history into two parts. There's B.C., which stands for what? Before Christ. And there's A.D., which stands for, it's a Latin phrase, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Christians in the first century called Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where that phrase came from. Author Philip Yancey notes how interesting it is that when people curse, they use the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says this in his book, how strange it would sound if when a businessman missed a golf putt, he yelled, Thomas Jefferson! Or if a plumber screamed, Mahatma Gandhi, when a pipe wrench smashed his finger. What do we hear people say? Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ really is a central figure in all of history. And what you believe about Jesus, according to the Bible, determines your eternal destiny. What you believe about Jesus determines how you live in this broken, fallen world. And today, as we explore the book of Philippians, we're going to see that what you believe about Jesus, in fact, your connection to Jesus, greatly influences your relationships with other people. Now, once again, here's the theme of Philippians, this letter that was written by a man named Paul to a group of believers in the city of Philippi. It's on your outline. The book of Philippians teaches us the kind of perspective a follower of Christ must have in order to do this, to experience joy and peace in a world filled with what? Trouble. 
a world filled with trouble. And I wanted to give you a, a sort of a synopsis of the passage that we're going to look at today. This is an incredibly powerful passage about Jesus. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And this synopsis is on your outline. It says this, In this passage, Paul urges Philippian believers to imitate the attitude of Jesus in their relationships with each other, and here's a reason, so they can carry on his mission in the world. Now, what does that mean for us in the same way? We need to imitate the attitude of Christ in our relationships with others so that we can carry out Christ's mission in our generation. Now, this passage in Philippians 2 is one of the most countercultural passages in the entire Bible because it challenges our assumptions about power. It challenges our assumptions about influence and status. In fact, for some people, it challenges their assumption about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So listen carefully to these words written by Paul under the inspiration of God's Spirit. In fact, we're going to put them on the screen right now from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And then Paul goes on and he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. There was a book that I read a while back by a pastor. His name is Bill Hybels, and the title of the book is called Descending into Greatness. And in this book, he has a chapter where he talks about what happens when you take 10 chickens and put them together in a confined space. And he talks about the social order that emerges called the pecking order. How many of you are familiar with that term, the pecking order? What happens is you put these 10 chickens together and they begin to peck away at each other. And through a series of skirmishes, they organize themselves based on dominance. Now, at the top of the pecking order, you have chicken number one. And he's the top dog, or in this case, the top chicken. And he can peck on anybody he wants with absolute Impunity. Nobody messes with chicken number one. And then as you go down the pecking order, you have chicken number two. Now, chicken number two is completely intimidated by chicken number one. He will not mess with chicken number one. But who does he peck on? Chicken number three. And who does chicken number three peck on? Stay with me here. Ch chicken number four and chicken number four pecks on chicken number five, all the way down to chicken number 10. Now, chicken number 10 has a miserable life because all day long, he goes around asking this question. Why is everybody pecking on me? Now, what's fascinating is that you can see this, this pecking order in our human relationships because in some families, for example, some fathers, some dads kind of think, you know what, there is this social order in our family and I am chicken number what? Yeah. Dad's chicken number one. So dad has a really bad day and he comes home and he's frustrated. So who does he peck on? Chicken number two, which is usually, if he's married, who's that going to be? He pecks on his wife and the wife pecks on the oldest son and the oldest son pecks on the youngest daughter and she doesn't have anybody to peck on so she pecks on the dog and the dog bites the head off the Barbie doll. So it's just this, it's a mess. Now you would think, you would think that if you get a group of pastors together in a confined space, that you wouldn't have to deal with a pecking order. 
But I've been in gatherings of pastors where through a series of questions and observations, a certain social order emerges. Questions like this, so how big is your church? How big is your budget? How big is your staff? And even in the parking lot, oh, I see that's the car that you drive. Or, or they look at a computer and go, hey, listen, um, I see you only have a PC. I have a MacBook Pro. And so there is this social order that emerges even sometimes among pastors. But I will tell you this, I've been in other settings with pastors and I have been so thankful that these pastors wanted nothing to do with the pecking order. And that's essentially what Paul is telling these believers in Philippi. Listen, have nothing to do with the pecking order. Dismantle the pecking order in your relationships with each other and here's why. Because of your relationship with Jesus. Now look at the statement on your outline. This is a very profound and powerful statement and we're going to talk about it the quality of your relationship with Christ will be reflected in the quality of your relationships with others there's a direct connection now look at verse 1 again it says this therefore if and notice how many times the word if is used therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. This is a classic if-then statement. If this is true, then this also should be true. If you really are connected to Jesus Christ, that should be evident in your relationships with other people. In fact, in the original language, the word if could be translated since. Since you have this connection with Jesus, it will be seen in your relationships with each other. Now, there are two very practical things that we see in this passage. And I want to point them out. The first is this. Followers of Jesus should love others without exception or distinction. Followers of Jesus should love others without exception or distinction. Are there people in your life who are easy to love? Hopefully that's true. I have people in my life that are really easy to love. The people that are always looking for ways to encourage me. People who say, hey, how are you doing? And they really want to hear the answer. Those people are easy to love. What about this? Are there people in your life who are hard to love? People who just are so critical all the time. People who you really can't count on to tell you the truth. Let's take it to a, a whole different level. Are there people that you consider impossible to love? You know, maybe it's that husband that abuses his wife, the mother that neglects her children, the doctor who works in an abortion clinic, the terrorist who kills innocent people. Arguably, one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible is John 3.16. It's a quote from Jesus. It goes like this, For God so loved certain kinds of people that he gave his one and only son. Anybody want to correct that? For God so loved the world. For God so loved all kinds of people that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we know that God calls us to love other people without exception or distinction. But you know what? It gets even harder. Because take a look at this statement from this passage. Followers of Jesus should value others above themselves. And that's where we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let, let's be serious. You really expect me to do that? Because what is the default mode of the human heart? It's to focus on who? 
Yeah, on us. And I've used this illustration before, but it's just, it's really fascinating. You know, if we took a group photo and I showed it to you, whose face would you look for first? It's like a default. We, we look for our own. And what determines if it's a good picture? How who looks? How you look, exactly. And so there's something that really brings me a lot of comfort because I pray and I say, you know, Lord, I know you love this person, but I'm having a really hard time. So here's what's really amazing when you think about it, and this is on your outline. This is so encouraging. Jesus is not only our model for how to live in relationships with others. He is the source, the source of all that we need to live in right relationships with others. I'm so thankful Jesus doesn't just say, hey, go love, go forgive, go serve. He says, I will give you the desire and the ability to do those things if you're closely connected to me. And look at this verse again. It says this, in your relationships with one another have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. The Apostle Paul, as he writes letters, he often uses this phrase to describe Christians. He says, you are in Christ. You're connected to Jesus. His life flows into you. He's changing you and making you more like him. Now, church, I could do a whole message on the idea that I want to share next, but it's simply this. It's not enough to just try to be like Jesus. You have to train to be like Jesus. Did you catch that? You can't just try to be like Jesus. I mean, it's good to, to expend effort and energy trying to be like Jesus, but it goes far beyond that. Because how many of you have ever tried to be patient with somebody and you just weren't? Or you tried to love, or you tried to forgive, or you tried to be kind? I mean, we work this out in our relationships and it's hard because it takes more than just effort. It takes training, not just trying. I asked this question at first service. Let me ask it here. How many of you right now this afternoon could go out and run a 26-mile marathon? Okay, we got some. All right, good. All right, now, to be able to run that marathon, did you have to do any training? Oh, yeah. How many of you think that if you trained for a year, you could possibly run a half marathon or a marathon? Okay, see the difference? You can't just go out and try to do it. You have to train to do it. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Or how about this? Let's say that you want to play a really hard piano piece. You want to play a classical piece by Bach or Beethoven, and you've never played the piano. Can you just set that music up there and sit down and try really hard to play it? Can you? No, it doesn't matter how hard you try or how much you want to do it. You have to train to do it. You have to play scales. You have to take piano lessons. You have to practice day in and day out. Now, here's what I want you to see. When it comes to being like Jesus, it's not just a matter of trying to be like Jesus. It's a matter of training to be like Jesus. Now, that training involves spiritual habits or spiritual disciplines. If you want to live like Jesus lived, you've got to do what Jesus did. For example, it says in the Bible, this is in Mark 135, that early in the morning, Jesus got up and went off to a solitary place to do what? Yeah, he prayed. So if you want to be like Jesus, what do you have to do? You've got to develop the discipline, the habit of prayer. Jesus worshiped. Jesus knew scripture. Jesus served other people. If we build those habits into our lives, it gives us the opportunity to build a close relationship with Christ. And it's in that relationship that Jesus gives us the desire and the ability to live a life that honors and pleases him. Now, why is that so important? 
Look at your outline again. Look at that statement I just pointed out. The quality of your relationship with Christ will be reflected in the quality of your relationships with others. And, and let me just talk to the guys for a minute. Because when I'm talking to, to men and they're telling me, man, I just wish my, my marriage was better. I wish it was stronger, my relationship with my, with my wife. You know what I tell them? Here's what you need to do. Strengthen your relationship with Jesus. And when wives say, I wish my relationship with my husband was stronger, I say, listen, you need to strengthen your relationship with Jesus. Because here's how it works. Think about this. Just use your imagination for a minute. wish I had a, a white board to show you this. Let's say this is the husband. Okay, there's a point right here. And this is the wife. Are you with me? Okay, nod your head if you're with me. All right, and here's Jesus up here. All right, so the husband is moving closer to Jesus and the wife is moving closer to Jesus. What's happening with their relationship? You see that? They're moving closer to each other because the quality of your relationship with Christ will be reflected in the quality of your relationships with other people. And that doesn't just apply to marriage. It applies between parents and children and brothers and sisters and church family members. The quality of your relationship with Jesus will be reflected in the quality of your relationships with others. And that brings us to the last question that I want to consider this morning. What does this passage teach us about Jesus. Now this, this passage is so rich and I wish we had more time but I want to quickly point out three things that it teaches us about Jesus. And here's the first. Look at verse 6. It says this. And it's describing Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is that Jesus Christ claims to be God and backs up that claim. See, Jesus said that he had the authority to forgive sins. One time, in talking with one of his disciples named Thomas, he said, Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. Over and over again, Jesus didn't just say that he was God, he proved it by his miracles. He had power over disease. He had power over nature. He had power over death. And church, here's the deal. If Jesus is not God, then why are we here? Seriously. I mean, if Jesus isn't God, he can't forgive your sins. He cannot settle your past. He cannot assure your future. He cannot give you the power you need today. Jesus is God. And the Bible says there's one God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is God the Son. And here's the amazing thing this passage teaches that is so hard to wrap our minds around. God became one of us. Jesus Christ stepped out across the stars, laid aside his privilege, and became a human being. Look at verse 6 again. It says this. <clears throat> Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And church, the reason that this passage is so countercultural is that it describes how Jesus accomplished the mission of his Father. He came down, way down. Philip Yancey says this, the God who came to earth came not in a raging whirlwind, nor in a devouring fire. Unimaginably, the maker of all things shrank down, 
down, down, so small as to become an ovum, a single fertilized egg barely visible to the naked eye. The God who could order armies and empires around like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenage girl for shelter, food, and love. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The kind of love that would prompt Jesus Christ to volunteer for that kind of mission. And listen, once Jesus came down, once he arrived in this world, he never stopped descending. Think about this. The, the Jesus who owns everything never had a home to live in. The Jesus who was worshipped and adored and served by armies of angels stooped down and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. This Jesus, the creator of all things, comes to the very people he created and they ridiculed him and rejected him. The giver of life was stripped naked, was nailed to a cross and died like a common criminal. And we step back and we go, God, what are we supposed to learn from this? And here's what we learned, that the path to true greatness is down. The path to fulfilling God's purpose for our life is humility and servanthood. But church, in our culture, down is not a very popular word. Down is a word for losers, not winners. Think about the connotation of words and phrases like these. Downfall, downtrodden, downhill, downsize, down and out. Are those negative or positive phrases, typically? Yeah, they're negative. But what about these up phrases? Upscale, up-and-coming, upwardly mobile, upper class. Even Billy Joel was looking for what kind of girl? Some of you know, he was looking for an uptown girl. Jesus came to show us that the kingdom of God is upside down. Actually, what the kingdom of God does is turn everything right side up according to God's perspective. Because Jesus was not a leader who was prideful and self-promoting. Jesus was a leader who displayed incredible humility and servanthood, and that's exactly what he calls us to do. I know there are a number of, of students and leaders here from our mission trip this past week, and uh, let me just say, um, team, I really am so thankful for the experiences that we share together. And for me personally, one of the most moving things was what happened Thursday night. We had an opportunity as leaders to serve our students by washing their feet, just like Jesus did with his disciples. And I am so thankful for our adult leaders, um, Shane Armstrong and uh, Leah Rock, Angel Bennett, um, Donna Barrett, Faustina Skandra. We had six leaders and 24 students. Our team was 30. But that night in a gym, um, our leaders took basins of water. We put a towel over our shoulder. And we washed the feet of our students. And then we prayed for each one of them. And I know that was such a meaningful time for me because I know this about myself. I couldn't do that without God changing my heart. And see, that's what God does. That's what all of the teaching of Jesus is designed to accomplish, to change our hearts and make us willing to do whatever it takes to serve other people because Jesus has served us. But in order to do that, there has to be this revolution in our heart where we realize, you know what? I am really basically a selfish person. I am a sinner and I need a savior. 
And that's the next thing that this passage teaches us about Jesus, that Jesus is Savior. Of course, it raises the question, well, Savior, what did Jesus come to save us from? Well, it's right in his name because the angel tells Joseph, you will give this baby the name Jesus for he will save his people from their what? From their sins. And the Bible's clear. You know, we've got this heart that pulls us away from God. We, we break his commands. We break his commandments. The Bible calls that sin, and sin separates us from a holy God. And because God's just, he has to punish every sin we've ever committed. We call this the bad news because we can't do anything about it. We cannot just change our hearts on our own. God has got to do that, which is why Jesus came to this world. Jesus became a human being to rescue us. He wanted it to be possible for our relationship with God to be restored. That's why he lived a perfect life. That's why he went to a cross and died in our place. That's why God was willing to take our sin and put, put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place. That's why Jesus died. But he didn't stay dead, did he? He came back to life and he offers us a new life. And this passage is so powerful because it talks about God honoring his son. When Jesus was willing to accomplish the will of his father, when he was willing to be humiliated, God exalted him. And that's how the passage continues. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. We just sang a song a few minutes ago. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. A name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. One day, church, this is going to happen. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some knees will bow voluntarily and some will be bent by God the Father. But every person who's ever lived will someday confess, yeah, Jesus, you're Lord. I may not love you, I may not follow you, but I admit that you're in charge and that you will determine my eternal destiny. And I thought about that this week because back in the first century, there was a creed that the Christians lived by. And you know what a creed is, it's what you believe. There are a lot of Christian creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. The first creed that Christians lived by was three words, Jesus is Lord. Now here's why that was such a countercultural and dangerous creed. Because in the Roman Empire, citizens were required to say, Caesar is Lord. They had this public ceremony. They were supposed to take this little pinch of incense and, and throw it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. But you know what the Christians did? They refused. And they said, Jesus is Lord. And many of them died for that declaration. I remember quite a number of years ago, after I had decided that I was going to follow Jesus, I was, I was trying to understand this idea that Jesus is not just Savior, but he's Lord. That he is the one that wants to be in charge of every area of my life. And a friend said this to me. He said, Dudley, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. And I've never forgotten that. Because I think that all of us struggle with, with this idea that, okay, I'll, I'll let Jesus be Lord of this part of my life, but you know what, over here, I'm going to call the shots. But that's not what it means to follow Jesus. It means to give him the authority to manage every single area of your life. That's what it means to say, that he is Lord of all. Let me just close with a, a story. I heard this from Steve Brown. And he was talking about an incident that took place during the days of the Civil War involving Abraham Lincoln. 
there was a slave auction that was going on and there was this young girl that was being auctioned to the highest bidder and all these men had gathered around and they were bidding on her because the highest bidder could just use her for their purposes. Well, Lincoln saw what was going on, so he entered this bidding war and he outbid everybody else and he purchased this girl, this young woman. And so the auctioneer brought this woman over to Lincoln and he said, listen, I just paid a lot of money for you, but I want you to know this, I am setting you free. And of course, the girl was stunned and she said, well, does that mean that I'm free to say anything I want to say to you right now? Lincoln said, yeah, you're free to say anything you want. And she thought for a minute and said, well, does that mean that I'm, I'm free to to do anything I want to do? He says, yeah, you're, you're free to do what you want to do. And finally she said, well, does that mean that I'm free to go anywhere that I want to go? And Lincoln said, yes. And she looked him in the eye and said, well, then I think I'll go with you. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, we just are so incredibly thankful for Jesus, our Savior. We're thankful that you exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And God, we're thankful that you call us to be like him. But Lord, the fact is that we just can't do that, not in and of ourselves. We need you, God. We need a close connection with Jesus. We need your spirit to give us the desire and the ability to love and forgive and and serve. And so God, we've met in this room a lot of times. We've had a lot of communion services. But everyone is unique and special. And so I pray this Sunday, God, that you would speak to each one of us. Show us, God, those places in our hearts where we're not surrendering to your lordship. Lord, show us the places that we're being selfish and prideful. God, please come and change us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.